There are three points that I'm going to bring out today. So if you're taking notes, the first one, Jesus uses children as the picture of humility. The second point is Jesus loves the language of Judah. And the third, Jesus desires no little ones to be lost. So the first one, Jesus sees children as the picture of humility. I want to develop that a little bit. And the way to do this is to understand a couple things. First century Rome was different than where we live in so many ways. It was an empire, but at the same time, it was still pretty basic. I was looking at a PBS documentary on the very fact of what was the history of Rome. When Jesus was there, what was it like? And there's an excerpt from that documentary I want to read to you, because I think it's so powerful. And it talks about men and women. I don't know if you've ever seen the big fat Greek wedding, but there's a part in it where the women are trying to outwit the man, the father of the house, and they sit down and they come up with a plan and they said, women are the neck and men are the head. We can move them any way we want. I don't know if that's true. It feels like that sometimes. But they actually said that in Rome, women had some influence. They had some moving of the head of their husbands. But they had very limited in some of the most significant decisions of the family. So I want to read you this documentary quote or excerpt. It says, the influence of women only went so far. The father had the right to decide whether to keep newborn babies. After birth, the midwife placed the babies on the ground. Only if the father picked it up was the baby formally accepted into the family. If the decision went the other way, the baby was exposed, deliberately abandoned outside. This usually happened to deformed babies or when the father did not think the family could support another child. Babies were exposed in specific places and it was assumed that an abandoned baby would be picked up and taken as a slave. When I read that, I said, that's unbelievable to me. So you have this visualization of a baby being born in the safest place it could be in the womb of this mother to this exposed area and the father has to make a decision. He's gonna walk and he's probably gonna make three decisions. Is this child deformed? Is this child a girl? And is this child somebody we can afford? And the Roman people decided whether they were going to keep the baby according to those three criteria. And if he didn't keep it, he took him from the inside. And where did he put the child? Outside. And that child realistically was taken as a slave. I just said this sounds so barbaric. We live in a culture right now where we're the benefactors of something that's happened, where we do have this wonderful things for our children like schools and we help them get well if they're injured we have hospitals but that didn't just start so in 18th century christianity i mean first century christianity that wasn't the culture i can't even imagine that and so here's where jesus and if you have your bibles i want you to turn to matthew 18 this is where jesus steps into this world and this is what he says he says this at the time the disciples came to jesus this is Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And calling to him. So they're all standing around. This is a pattern of the disciples to ask this question. Who's the best? It's a pattern from the history of mankind. Who's number one? They say, who's the greatest? And calling them, 
He said, he looks at this child and he says, calling to him a child, he put them in the midst. In the gospel of Luke, it actually says he puts him next to his side. Jesus puts his arms around him. So you can visualize this child watching this conversation with the disciples. He sees him and he pulls him into the midst and he puts him next to his side. And he says this, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The reaction statement of the disciples tells you a lot. Sam Lamerson has said this many times. When you look at a story and you're reading a story through the Bible, one of the things that you want to do is look at the reaction of the people that are participating in the story. It tells you what's going on. Their view of themselves was we are the greatest. And they were trying to decipher that. You remember even some of the disciples' mothers said, who's going to sit on the left and who's going to sit on the right? And they make this kind of comparison to who's going to be the greatest. And they continue this. And this is a pattern of the disciples because they view Jesus' mission different than what it was. They thought there would be some form of hierarchy. And what does Jesus say? This servant boy, this slave child, let's put him in the middle and he's the greatest. He starts with humility. He turns all of Rome upside down in their thinking. Jesus does what he often does when he answers a question. He turns it in from a statement to a visual. All of Jesus' pictures, you see his parables. What does he compare them to? Things. He usually doesn't answer the question directly. He usually answers it by a picture. Here he does with this child who's little. And he pulls him into his side and he embraces the child. And the reality is, is that Jesus is answering this question in a certain way to get to their hearts. There's a Norwegian sociologist, his name is O.M. Bakke. And I saw this, a guy by the name of John Ortberg had, did, did a sermon on children. And I was listening to this and the book title is this. He says, when ch- children became people, the birth of childhood in early Christianity. He talks about in Matthew 18, this is the beginning of when things changed. But I want you to hear this. It says, Christ begins the change in culture by exalting the position of women, children, and the poor. We are benefactors of that change. Christ started as early as Matthew 18. Here is where it begins. God delights in showing mercy to those who are humble. The second point, I've been doing a series on in Sunday school from Nehemiah. And if you know the story of Nehemiah, he builds the wall around the temple. And Ezra and Nehemiah, and the reason I picked this is I actually hadn't studied that much about Ezra and Nehemiah. So I ended up picking this as my Sunday school lesson. I would recommend don't do that. It's a lot harder. Pick something you know. But I picked this, this idea and I didn't really know it all that well. And as I was going through, all of the story about Ezra building the temple and the second temple, and then he putting the wall, Nehemiah putting the wall. It finishes in Nehemiah 13. And there's something I read in Nehemiah 13 that I thought was just fascinating. It's one of those things when you read it, you go, is this really in the Bible? How many times do you read the Bible and you just go, was that really there? Have I read that before? This is one of those passages and says, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. I don't know who Ashdod is, but I know this, it was a people. And they could not speak the language of Judah. They could not speak Hebrew, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, this is Nehemiah, I confronted them and cursed them and beat them, some of them, and pulled out their hair. Could you imagine a pastor doing that? (laughs) 
Some of us look like we have had our hair pulled out and we probably deserved it. But a pastor running around and beating them because they didn't teach their children the language of Judah. Nehemiah is so frustrated that they don't know the language. And when I think of the language, I want you to hear it's synonymous with the gospel. Are we training our children in the way of the gospel? What does the next generation look like? We do, these event, we do all these events where we support children physically. We take care of them. We even educate them out of school. But are we ch- training in the church our children the way they should go in the language of Judah? I became convicted to say we spend a lot of time doing benevolent things, good things. We are a church that is extremely generous. We even do certain things after school where we do daycares and help. But have have we committed as a church to actually raising the next generation? One of the members in this church asked me one time after a baptism, you know, we do the baptism up here, we put the water on. So many people are unfamiliar with that because they've come from a different background. They ask the question, what does it mean? And it's a sign and seal of the covenant between God and this child. But we do this, and you remember what the parents have to do on January 3rd? We'll see that. They have to make a vow on how they're going to raise the children. What do they do with the members? We make you do what? Stand up, and you make a promise. And this man came up to me and said, I don't even know these children. How can I vow to raise them? And I thought it was a legitimate question. We all as a congregation are getting up here, and we're vowing to take care of these children. And yet we don't even know them. The reality is, as a church, though, that is what we commit to. We covenant with one another. And this covenant's a big deal to God. It's not to the point that we don't take it seriously. We're going to pull your hair out if you don't get it right. Thank God for the grace of God. But it doesn't diminish the fact that God is serious about the language of Judah. The thing that excites me most, and I've I've talked with a lot of families here, when you have children, I was a youth pastor for a long time, when you have children being raised, they do well from about first grade to about sixth grade. And then something happens. And I think we all know what it is. They start to change. And they no longer are interested in hearing the instruction of their parents. That's when the youth pastor comes in, and we hope we don't do more damage than good. But at the end of the day, they come in and they're raised, and some of the parents' children, when they go to college and they go through the youth, lose them. And I know there's some parents here that go, where are my children? Are they even here? But this parable of the lost sheep is also in Matthew 18. Let me read it to you. It says this, see that you do not despise any of these little ones, for I tell you in heaven, their angels always will see the face of the father. How many people have ever seen the picture of the angel when, he, when the angel is over the children? When I was growing up, my grandmother, who was Catholic, had this picture of angels. They loved angels. And I remember it was huge. And we walk in, and it's, the angels has these huge wings, and you got this bridge, and you have two like Hans Christian Anderson children walking across the bridge, and there's little holes in the bridge and you're looking to see and it's showing this angel looking down to make sure that the children are safe this passage says they're angels god's angels are looking down on our children they care it's not just an earthly thing to care about it's a heavenly thing and if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray does he not leave the 99 on the mountains 
and go in search of the one who went astray. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than any of the other 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I don't know about you, but that's comforting. It's super comforting to me that God has a desire for every single little one. I'm going to conclude with a story in a verse. Um, when I was, a, the first job I ever had as a youth pastor, I was 23 years old. I went to this small church that had 150 people. The youth group had 40 people in it. We had raised enough money to take the students on a trip to Disney. And I've told this before, but I've said, I asked all the children, they come from different groups, a lot of them came from minority families. And I asked the children, how many had ever gone to Disney? There was 40 children, only one had gone. I said, I'd gone to Disney, I don't know how many times. So we get a bus and Westminster Academy allows me to get the bus. I come over, pick up with the children. We squeeze them into the bus. We head to Orlando. We're getting to Orlando. Right when we get to Orlando, we drop all the kids off. And I'm thinking, is this a good idea? Kids that have never gone to Disney World. I said, what could go wrong? I, so I sit them down. We have a strong talk. I said, whatever you do, don't die. That's your goal. Just don't die. And I said, see this spot right here, when the park closes, I said, this is how you'll know the park closes. There's no more rides to go on, the lights will go down. That means the park's closed. When that happens, you come here. So I thought, this is great. They got security cameras watching these children. How bad can it really be? And about 10 o'clock, the park closes. All the kids start coming out. Everything's working great. 39 children come out, one doesn't. And this is my first gig at this. I said, how did I screw it up the first time? But I'm not all that worried because I counted the kids and I counted again and I said, there is one child missing. And I figured out who it was because we just had a head count. So then I said to the adults, go take all the kids back to the hotel and me and one other leader will wait. Well, 20 minutes passed by. Still not there. I realize this boy is 18 years old. His name is Gene. He's from a Haitian family and he speaks broken English. And so I go, okay, he's just running slow. He's an 18 year old. Maybe he's, he was a sweet kid. Never thought he'd be doing anything wrong. So 20 minutes go by and then I realize I gotta go into the park. So I asked them to let me back into the park. Disney did. I go in, I look everywhere. Can't find him. I mean, everywhere bathrooms everywhere. I go, there's nobody here anymore. I'm going, I've got to run into this child. Well, I was there till two in the morning. Still cannot find the child. And so I have the dreaded thought, I'm going to have to tell his parents. And so I go, I'm going to have to call mom because what if I lose this child? And so I call, she gets on the phone. Her English is even worse. My Creole is even worse than her English. So we're, I call her, and you can tell she immediately gets what I'm saying because the tone of the conversation changes. And she begins to cry. She begins to be nervous. She begins to be hysterical, really. And then she passes the phone to the father. And I tried to explain to him that we've called the police. We've called the security. 
And the only thing I can do now is I think this kid has must have run away. That's the only thing that makes sense. So I go back to my room, I sit in my room, and I wait. I don't know what to do. I go, I have no other place to look. How can I comb all of Orlando? And I'm sitting there exhausted, so tired that I'm going, this has got to end soon. It didn't end until 4 o'clock in the morning. I get a phone call. And it is the security from Disney World. And it's one of those ones where the pit, you go, something bad's happened. And he calls, and I pick up the phone, and I'm going, just whatever it is, be good news. He says, we found Gene. I said, you got to be kidding. That's great news. And all of a sudden, my heart jumps up. And I said, where could he possibly be? He said he was in Lost and Found. I swear to you. I said, we've done all this, and he's been sitting in Lost and Found the whole time? I said, this is the dumbest security I've ever seen. I'm not trying to knock. Wouldn't that be the first place you look? The Lost and Found? I'm not kidding. It was the worst night of my life and the happiest moment of every phone call I'd ever received. So I went to the park, and when I got to the park, he ran out. Here's an 18-year-old boy, runs to me and embraces me and weeps because he'd been found. He'd been found. Guys, when you think of our Savior, we lost Jesus and put him in the nativity. Let's not lose Jesus in the midst of this for our children. Jesus desires every single one of them to be found. There's a great verse in Philippians, and I, I'm sure you've read it. I've got my notes all mixed up, so I'm going to try to give this to you, hopefully by memory, if I can. Let me think. I'm thinking. Here, what I'm going to do. This is safer. An iPhone. <laughs> Let's do that. It's Philippians if you want to turn to it. 2, 6 through 11. And I'm going to conclude with this. And I want you to hear it because it's so powerful. 6 through 11, and it starts as this. It says, who, meaning Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Being made in the likeness of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Jesus started low and he's exalted high. Our children are started low. God will one day bring them to the exalted seat if they will confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It should be the priority of the church. It should be the priority of everything we do. And it's a reminder to all of us, we all were lost and now we're found. And we have so much to celebrate during this time because the baby Jesus, who started in a manger, went and died and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, so that we might have life everlasting. Let's give that to our children because we've received it from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ.